I'm Brendan Madigan, and this is season two of Afterglow, a mountain storytelling podcast. I sat down with Hillary in February of 2018, the day after she had given a rousing and inspirational story of redemption at our annual winter speaker series. Her story was extremely powerful and one that spanned nearly two decades. The show documented her obsession with the 21,000 foot Himalayan giant, Papsura. Her story began with a single photo in 1999, included a failed attempt in 2013, and documented her ultimate success in 2017. During those 18 years of obsession, Nelson spent her time well and became one of the premier ski mountaineers in the world. Her tale, just like our conversation, was an unflinchingly honest portrayal of the life of an extreme ski mountaineer. Mountains have always been a backdrop to Hillary's life, but our conversation gave me some wonderful insights into who she is, the boundless love she has for her children, and the compelling urge to return to adventure in the mountains. Tell us about your Winter Film Series experience. I mean, it was really amazing, actually, to see such a huge part of the community come together in one place for one night and just bring so much excitement and be really pumped and just, it was just a really nice thing to be a part of. It was pretty cool. Yeah. Well, they were pumped that you were there. Yeah, which is great, (laughs) but that's awesome. And, you know, I mean, I know so many people in this valley and in these different little towns, Truckee and Tahoe mm-hmm. City and Squaw. So just a great place to connect with people. And it was very open and chatty and just really yeah. a unique thing that Alpenglow has put together, oh, cool. I think. Yeah. Well, we're glad you came for sure. Um, but you're from Seattle, right? Um, from Seattle, yep. Yeah. What was your childhood like? I, you know, it was normal to me. You know, when I look back on it, I'm like, well, it was pretty intense childhood. Um, I have an older brother and sister that I'm really close with. My sister still lives in Seattle. My brother's out in New York. And then I'm in Colorado now, so we're pretty spread out. My parents are in Seattle. We grew up um, kind of in the north part of the city and I started skiing at a really young age, even though my parents didn't really ski. They got all three of us into it. And we'd like get on the Greyhound bus at like six in the morning on Saturday and Sunday and bus up to Stevens Pass and ski all day. And, you know, the bus was full of kids Mm -hmm. from my age, you know, in like third grade all the way up to high schoolers and beyond. So it was super fun. And then... The majority of my summers and early falls were spent on this old Chris Craft boat that my parents sort of remodeled and set up, and we'd live on that for weeks and weeks at a time mm-hmm. and cruise all over the San Juans and up into Canada, quite a ways up into Canada. It oh, was cool. pretty wild and cool back then, you know. Mm-hmm. It's a little more well-traveled now, but right. yeah. it was pretty remote then. I love the bus story to Stevens Pass. It's like, I think, close to every skier's heart as an adult, you know? Yeah. Um, what role did that play in your kind of creating that romance with, with skiing? First and foremost was just the effort it took to go skiing. Like, it was a lot. We'd get up at 5 in the morning and, you know, eat breakfast, get all of us rolling and you know I was always in my brother's hand-me-down stuff Mm -hmm. and you'd get up to the mountain and you know there weren't cell phones and things back then so you were totally on your own like I remember one time I broke my leg and I had to just have this cardboard box on my leg I was in fifth grade or sixth grade or something and I just had to wait up there till everybody got on the bus and then we took the bus back down I get off the, I get carried off the bus and my mom's just standing there like, oh, 
what happened? You know, like <laughs> there is not that immediacy of like the transfer of what's going on. And it just, it was like a different pace, you know? Right. And yeah, I think what really stuck with, with me was that, yeah, you just had to work. It was a lot of effort to go skiing and you had to really love it. Right. And I really loved it. So I stuck with it. So I've, I've read that you pulled the plug on whatever a traditional lifestyle pursuit is and moved to Chamonix instead of yeah going down the career path or whatever. Yeah. What, what drove that? You know, that is a really good question. Sometimes like decisions come out of me that I look back on and they seem very distinct and very black and white decisions in hindsight. But at the time it just seemed like a way of life. Like I was just compelled down this different road from the more traditional path that my siblings took, that Mm -hmm. my friends took, et cetera. But I don't think I really realized it at the time. It just unfolded itself for me in, in these little steps until all of a sudden I'm kind of where I am today. And it, and it has been a different life in some ways. But it, again, you know, you surround yourself with people that are sort of like-minded. So my parents think I have this crazy life, yet at the same time I'm kind of like, well, I, I do this with all, I mean, all these other people do this too, and right. they're all my friends, and that's who I know and what I know now. So to me it doesn't seem that different. But, yeah. Um, to my family, it's, you know, it's a big step away from how I grew up. Right. Yeah. It's funny how I think myself included, like there are a lot of people who come to the mountains and manage to stay and carve out a living or whatever they have. It almost seems like there's an invisible hand pushing yeah, us towards really, that. It really does. That's a good way of putting it. I mean, I do remember there was one distinct moment, like my senior year in college, I was on this, uh, this like biology I was a biology major in college and I was on this marine biology semester and scuba diving every day and I really wanted to be a marine biologist and we were living on this tiny little island in um called the South Caicos Island and I remember sitting the highest point was like 50 feet off the water and I remember sitting there and making these clouds into mountains and like pretending there was snow on them and all of a sudden it just clicked that I was not going to be a water person and I had to like get off that island and move <laughs> to the mountains. And pretty much less than a year later, I was in Chamonix. Wow. Yeah. And for for people who don't know the kind of the extreme nature of Chamonix, it's a pretty rowdy place. Yeah. I mean, in hindsight, I'm, you know, it, it worked out well for me, but... I mean, it's an, it's literally a miracle I didn't kill myself in that first year because I just was Bambi. I was a deer caught in headlights when I showed up there. I had no idea and no business engaging in that place. But I managed to live through that first year, and this learning curve was so steep. And there's a lot of death in Chamonix. I mean, mm-hmm. it's everywhere. Um, people really push it there more so than any other place I've ever been. Right. So I think I jumped in really intensely with two feet and uh, it influenced my path forward for sure. Right. Yeah. Well, and, I, and I've, you know, I think it's way different than, for instance, my path where I moved west and never, never left. Right. But right. that was just, you know, kind of that, whatever you want to call it, American dream or whatever. and. But, but that's still like Chamonix a huge step in your realm. Because yeah. I, I grew up West. I grew up, I mean, I grew up in the Cascades. You mm-hmm. know, those are really dramatic mountains. Right. The North Cascades. A lot of my dad's whole side of the family is from Cedar Woolley, which is up on the North Cascades Highway. And you're you're right in the thick of those yeah. mountains and Mount Rainier. And so even though I perceive my childhood as this marine water childhood, it was always this backdrop of big mountains and glaciers and, you know, storms and winter. And so I think in that way, Chamonix wasn't 
such an extreme jump. It mm-hmm. was sort of a, a natural move, but it was the people that inhabited that place and their ambitions and their background and knowledge that was what really was something unexpected for me that I, I didn't even know existed, like the whole guiding culture that is Chamonix and right. just the history of the Alps is so much more intense and beloved for the entire country, you know, mm-hmm. like the, the U.S. just doesn't have quite the same mountain culture yeah. that you have over there. So, but yeah. yeah, so it was always a backdrop to my whole life. Right. I've read somewhere that during your time in Chamonix, you kind of referred to yourself as flippant when it came to death. Was that a kind of a product of the environment? Yeah, I remember uh, very well my first couple weeks there I met uh, someone who kind of became my guardian for the rest of the time that I lived there Um, his name was Alex Vandell and he was a paraglider and he took me off the Aguida Midi like straight away I mean talk about Bambi Mm -hmm. and we flew around kind of around to the north side and there were all these helicopters flying around and they were looking for a skier that had disappeared the day before and it was actually trevor peterson wow and that was where they found his body at the bottom of the cosmic and we just happened to be flying over on this paraglider right at that moment that they found him and it really left an impression on me because i was so shocked at death in the mountains at that point and i think that's how i gauged my time in chamonix is after four or five years there, I became incredibly flippant about it and just was like, took it in stride and had no emotion around it. And that was actually my red flag that it was time for me to leave Chamonix because I didn't want to be that person. I wanted it to have meaning to me and have importance. And I was just becoming this person that took it way too in stride and was too flippant about it. And so that was really what eventually was my impetus for leaving Chamonix. Yeah. Has has that view of how you manage or deal with death, has that changed over the last 20 years since you've come back? Yeah, it has changed a lot. I've seen a lot more of it and been influenced by a lot more friends dying in the mountains and people that um, I've been close to. And I had a really intense experience with death when I was guiding um, in 2010 and struggled with that for a long time. Mm-hmm. But yeah, I think I consider myself actually very fortunate. It's not death and that inevitability isn't something that we talk about so much in the U.S. And it's much more of an open book and open subject in other parts of the world. Mm-hmm. And I think it's the one thing we all do <laughs> right. in our lives. Mm-hmm. And um, I think being aware of it and, you know, I talk to my kids about it and, uh, I th- I think it's a good thing to yeah. talk about it. To talk about it, and if you talk about death and try to understand it, I mean, it's not possible to really conceive of it. I don't think, but if you talk about it, I think it helps you live life more fully right. and with more intention. Yeah, and I think it's it's interesting too because whether it's you know Tahoe or Telluride or the Northwest or Chamonix, there's these enclaves of mountain people, right? And that's why I love the Winter Film Series because there's so many amazing people in one room and you can literally sense the energy and the passion. But then when we kind of lose track and it seems like death in the mountains comes in waves, at least here, where it happens It really does in the squad. It really does come in waves. I've noticed that not even being an inhabitant of this place, like you guys get hit pretty hard with it yeah but i think just in in anywhere is no no other mountain community is an exception but when someone does you know pass away in the mountains it's almost a a celebration of their lives you know it's tragic and there's a train wreck left behind and and those kinds of things but when you see the community come together and celebrate that person yeah i don't i don't I think people, normal people or non-mountain people do that too, but maybe not to the same degree. I think people who really have a lot of experience and time in the mountains experience a lot of loss. 
but they also experience a lot of joy and passion because they have this connection and they have something in their life that they're super passionate about and they follow and they're willing to take those risks. And so I think that has a lot to do with it. It's just, I know for me personally, I've experienced some of my all-time worst moments in the mountains and for sure my all-time greatest, happiest, most joyful moments in the mountains. Right. So I think when someone that's part of that mountain community dies in the mountains you have a lot of people that have that capacity for great joy as well as grief. And I think it's a bonding experience too for communities because when when Kip and Allison passed away, I mean, the room that we held the winter film series in probably had over a thousand people yeah. in it, you know, people yeah. hanging from the rafters and just to, you know, pay tribute to them as as heroes and athletes and friends and family and well, I think a big special. part of that too is these relationships that you have with people in the mountains are really solidified by that time because you get to know people so fast. I mean, that's one thing I love about expeditions. And take Kip, for example. I went to Pakistan with him and mm-hmm. he basically saved my life by figuring out that we were like asphyxiating in a tent. Mm. And uh, we couldn't figure it out. And he just popped up and was like, oh, my God, we're, we're, bare, we're asphyxiating. That's why all of this is going on. And he got his whole kit on and got out and, like, dug us out. And then, you know, we set an alarm. And every 45 minutes we got out of the tent and dug us out because we were just in this wind funnel. And I just think that part of the emotion within this community is that because you go out in the mountains with these people, you get to know people for all their good side and their bad side Mm -hmm. and whether you bring your best to the table or not you just create these incredible relationships that are strong and go deep yeah no it's a totally valid point and and a lot of times we talk about in these conversations we talk about the you know that this the power of those personal connections from expeditions like the brothers in arms mentality and do you do you think that's different or, or maybe how is it different for women versus men? Obviously, I can't relate to that, but I'm just curious if you think there's a, how, how do women kind of um, approach that? Well, I mean, that's a good question. I, I don't maybe know because I'm not a man, so I don't know how yeah. <laughs> like that sort of turns out for like the male relationship, but Maybe it's just universal. I think it's just a universal thing. I mean, I've done all women's trips. I've done mixed and I've done a lot of trips where I'm the only girl. And every trip is different and how you connect with people is different. And I've made some of my closest connections with other women climbers. And then also those connections have fallen apart Mm -hmm. because of the intensity, because of you know, just different life choices and things like that. So I don't really know how to answer that. Yeah. You know, it's it's hard not knowing the other side because I do have that female right. mentality of how those relationships develop. But I do know that it is one of my main motivating reasons is to right. have those interpersonal connections with people. Yeah, it's super rewarding. Yeah. Yeah. And maybe it's just a universal thing, you know, take gender out of it. And, you know, because I went to Denali and skied Denali with right. with some guys in 2011, and one of them was there last night. And of course, it's it's funny because we don't even ski together now. Right, right. But it's, you never lose that ever, like, ever. And we gave each other a big hug, and yeah, like, yeah, dude, the trip was epic. But right, yeah, I think it's I think maybe it's because it's such raw living right. that it's so rewarding. And of course, there's a downside to that if you know things don't work out, but. Right, but that's another part of it too is that it's not so much the relationships you have with other people. It's also you get you put yourself out there. Mm-hmm. And there's been plenty of times where I didn't put a very great self of mine out there and to be able to step back and be like, oh my gosh, that that is who you are when this situation happens. And um, you just, you really get to know yourself and how you react are you a panicker are you someone that goes calm when things go wrong you know are you in it for yourself are you in it you know just all these different things that like if you don't take risks and put yourself out there in emotional situations and with intensity then you don't know these things about yourself and that's another part of it that is really important and that I really uh 
appreciate. There's a lot of self-realization. Yeah, yeah. For better and for worse, yeah, for sure. Yeah, there's no hiding. <laughs> there's no hiding from yeah. yourself. It's funny, I've had this experience a lot of times because I do a lot of high-altitude climbing, and it's it's kind of, it's hard for me to really explain it in words, but the, a lot of times the higher I get, it's like the, the, the closer some relationships come in my mind mm-hmm. with people that aren't even there. Oftentimes with people who have passed away, um, it's, I wish I could explain it better, but it's really, um, it's a bit mystical. It's really mystical. And yeah. it's really, I don't know if it's just for lack of oxygen and I'm a hypoxic <laughs> or something, but it's just, a. it's, it's something I notice every time I get up into that thin atmosphere and closer. It's just like these, I have these conversations with people that, you know, that aren't right. there. I don't know. Maybe I should be checked into a mental institution. Or <laughs> no, I think but. it's a good point. I mean, it's, there's a lot of, um, you know, reasons that people go to the mountains. You know, when yeah. Corey talked about running from his personal life to the, literally the tippy top of the world. Yeah. And he yeah. still couldn't escape his demons, you know, <laughs> yeah. to just yeah, general physical yeah. pleasure. You know, it's yeah. it's fascinating. Um, but you, you're the only woman to climb Everest in, let's say, in 24 hours. Yeah. Um, what's that mean to you? I, I mean, it's funny because that wasn't the point of it at all. Uh, and, and the 24 hours really means I just, I stood on the summit of Everest and Lotse. So within 24 hours, so it wasn't, you know, starting at, um, base camp and moving up, but the, the real, the backstory on that, I guess, if you will, was that, uh, the day climbing Everest wasn't quite the weather window we expected. It was still super cold and it was a really crowded route and it was, tough climbing as a result because you're kind of stuck behind all of these people and Chris Erickson was my climbing partner that went to Lotse with me and he had been really adamant about us getting Lotse permits before the whole team got Lotse permits before we left and uh, he wanted to link the two of them and I really wanted to ski Everest but it just wasn't in condition that year so we ended up climbing it and it was really icy and it just took a long time and you got to the summit and you know there's 60 people on top of Everest and it was just an experience I'd never had before and you look across from Everest the whole time you're walking down and you're just looking at Lhotse which is an incredibly aesthetic beautiful peak with this amazing couloir that you climb up and how tall is Lhotse uh, 27,000 roughly so it's you know top so five. It's top 5 it's yeah. the fourth highest peak okay. yeah but sometimes it's just overlooked because it stands next to the giant Mount Everest. Mm-hmm. But yeah, so we just came down and we're like, we should just keep going. We have these permits. Let's just keep going and, and kind of change the change our mindset of Everest was amazing. And don't get me wrong. It was incredible to stand up there and as the, as the sun rises at 530 in the morning. And, mm-hmm. um, but to go on to a different peak and just be two people and stand on the summit by ourselves and you know the weather changed it was a lot warmer and it, it was just it was awesome yeah well it's interesting because when I was reading about it everything says the only woman but I asked Adrian I said well how many people have actually done that he said well I think about 20 yeah so I mean the- at the time this was in 2012 so I think we were the fourth and fifth people or fifth and sixth people yeah to do the link up and now it's a lot more common for sure yeah does it bother you that the kind of the mountaineering or alpine climbing world refers to it like that you know the only woman you know Um, as opposed to just another person yeah it's sort of funny because it's a double-edged sword like that's being the only woman that tagline has offered given me a lot of opportunity Mm -hmm. in my career on one hand And I think as we move forward into sort of this new space, there's going to be a lot less of that, you know, and it's going to be the first person or, you know, the the best form or or whatever it is. And Mm -hmm. it's going to be less gender related. I think it's also just because there's a lot more women in the world of mountaineering and and really charging in sports across the board. Mm -hmm. And when I first started, it was pretty 
rare and pretty unique to be a female in this world. And so just in the span of my career, which has been 20 years, a lot of things have changed. So for me, yes, like it does bother me a little bit because I don't want to be gauged just based on my gender gender. Mm -hmm. And especially because I do so many things with men and I, you know, try to be as comparable and it's been like a big motivator in Mm -hmm. my personal career. But at the same time, it has helped me a lot and helped me like create a name for myself and create respect in the, in the climbing community and, and whatnot. So yeah. Right. I don't know if that answers your question. It's a balance. Yeah. Yeah. Um, I think it's timely and I think, you know, it's great to see a, a complete shift in things, you know? Yeah. It's It's amazing and it's happening fast and it's overdue. Um, and it's awesome. It's just great to see. Cause there was a while there where I felt like there weren't new, there wasn't new blood, new females coming into mountaineering and Mm -hmm. climbing. And it's because it's expensive and it's time consuming and it's, dangerous and all you know there's so many reasons but i i think that's changing now and it's it's awesome to see just women women breaking barriers left and right in the climbing community skiing community everything alpine it's it's awesome you know like i look at my own kids and they're like you know oh man Susie kicked my butt skiing down the hill today and they're not like Oh, well, she's a girl. That's not, you know, that it's not, it's, it's just not shift. in their vernacular anymore. Yeah. It's totally different. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, you know, and I know I live in a little bubble in Telluride, but hopefully that change becomes the dominant way of right. thinking. Radiates, period. Yeah, yeah. it would be great. What's been the most rewarding thing about being a mother? I mean, continuing with expeditions and spending weeks, sometimes months away from my kids at a time was like, really hard like I I don't know if I were given you know an opportunity or the the if I had to do it again if I could do it again Mm -hmm. it was really challenging really hard and wondering if the kids were gonna understand why I had chosen this path and if it was going to have an influence on them was a big sort of stressor in my life yeah I believe it but it's awesome now like they're so I've taken that they came to Nepal with me they've right. been to Africa on Kilimanjaro with me and right. they're into it you know and they they like what I do and they think it's pretty cool and you know my older son brought home this homework thing the other day that was like if you could be anything you wanted to be I would be and it was like you know dot 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 finish the sentence and he was like I would be a professional skier like my mom and climb mountains oh, and that cool. was probably like they answer your question right. it's like oh my yeah. god it really they really do see it and they it's fun to watch them evolve I it's would just guess. fun to watch them evolve and they have this like you know they spin the globe around and they're looking at all these places all over the world and they just have an appreciation for different places and right traveling and and how, so. how did you balance that life of you know being a professional athlete and going on long expeditions and you know maintaining your month you know role as a mother uh, I, I mean, I don't know if I did do a very good job. I mean, I'm, been, I, I'm divorced, so that was really hard. Um, I wasn't able to find the balance there, and I think my kids are amazing little human beings. So I hope that both my ex-husband and I did a lot of things right in mm-hmm. that regard. And it's hard, you know, because you. As a mom, there's so much, I just took on so much with it. Yeah. (laughs) You just want, you want to make the right decisions every step along the way. And that's just impossible. There's no guidebook. There's no guidebook. And it's not (coughs) possible whether you're doing my career or whether you're doing a career at home. You know, I saw plenty of my friends whose kids had to go to, daycare five days a week all day long and it was torturous for them it was awful and so I kind of feel like in some ways even though I spent chunks of time away when I was home I had the kids all the time and was able to be with them so it's kind of a trade-off I also am really happy that I have kept my passion and kept myself 
Because I feel like without that, I wouldn't. I would have just sort of been this empty shell for mm-hmm. my kids. And I think that time of sacrifice of being away from them, but maintaining this passion has given them more insight into seeing their mother as a person as well. Right. Well, I think it's a good point too, because people who aren't professional athletes and who don't have these massive commitments, maybe they just work a normal job. Right. We're humans and we, we fuck up lives all the time and yeah, we make mistakes really and yeah. there, no one's perfect. But I would imagine that it seeing your lifestyle validated by the kids gives them a kind of a template for whatever you want to call it, authentic living or. Right. I mean, I think that's always the case. You only know what you know growing up. And so I grew up in this very traditional dad goes to work, mom stays home she's soccer mom and takes you everywhere and her whole identity is associated with the kids and she cooks meals. And so it was really stressful and hard for me to break away from that because I felt like I had to be that amazing full-time home mother. But I also saw this other side of my own mom of not of regret that she didn't do some of her dreams, but also just that difficulty she had when I was being the youngest I was the last one to leave home and she you know it took her a long time to kind of find herself and and who she was again after we left and so that was my big motivator in maintaining my own passion and identity while my kids were growing up and Mm -hmm. not waiting to do it until after they left right you only know what you know growing up what what your family life is like and so that was the hardest thing was for me to break out of that mold and do something different. And I don't know if it was the right way or the wrong way. You know, I don't, just you'll is. never know. It just is what it is. Yeah. We're all walking our own path. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Right. Has the way you've managed risk in the mountains changed, you know, as the kids get older or even having kids to begin with? Because it seems yeah, like I mean, you're very calculated. Yeah. I, I feel like it made me a better person in the mountains, a better a better climber, more, more able to listen to that sort of subconscious voice of fear and risk tolerance and who I could trust in partners and, and things like that and be more capable to have my own voice in a group and things like that because I had a lot to live for. Um, and I, I've never been so cavalier that I would risk that. I mean, I've gotten put in those situations where I wasn't sure I was going to come out in one piece, but more just by circumstance of weather or just some of the objective hazards that you can't always control, which just happens in the mountains. Mm -hmm. But otherwise, yeah, I try to be really conservative and calculated. And when I get to that point, like that Everest Lhotse, I mean, I was awake for 50 hours and had barely eaten and was hallucinating And it was thinking about my kids that helped me stay present and stay focused on like one step at a time, one step at a time, stop getting distracted, you know? So, um, yeah. Focus on the end goal. Yeah. Focus on the end goal. Stay, stay here. Don't, don't wander. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I think that's a good point too, because obviously at, you know, in your mid forties, you, if you were cavalier, you probably wouldn't be here. You know, I think that's a yeah. learning that's instructional for people who look up to you and, right. and kind of emulate that. But in it their is that, that is that's a fine line too, because some of the most precise, well versed, well experienced people that I've known in the mountains have also lost their lives. Mm-hmm. And you know, there it, it it's true. There's just no perfect formula for it. For sure there have been times when I've taken risks that I've looked back on and been like Ooh, that was, that was like too risky. You're mm-hmm. really lucky you got out of that one. Right. There's just no perfect formula, you know. Um, do you think there's uh, gender inequity in our outdoor space when it comes to sponsorships? Uh, yeah, there is. Um, I feel like it's very much being addressed presently. Mm-hmm in a good way and i'm psyched to see how it evolves i think it's going to happen i think it's going to evolve quickly over the next few years yeah in my own career how much it's changed from when i started to now is promising Mm -hmm. you know but yeah it's for sure it's there i mean it's just 
based on the percentages percentage of participants based on gender. Right. And those numbers will equalize to some extent and hopefully mentality and pay and all of that will equal equalize as well. Right. And I lo- I loved reading your quote in some article about well, no one's telling Conrad or Jimmy who are of right. comparable age, if not older, right. that they can't do things based on their age. Right, because that yeah. is something new that I'm approaching because I'm 45 years old, right. you know. And first it was like being a woman with kids and still going in the mountains. And now it's like being a woman in my 40s and still pushing stuff. It's like, yeah, well, nobody's telling Conrad he can't do it. Right. He's getting after it and, mm-hmm. you know, and Jimmy and... yeah. Peter Croft and you know all these yeah all these legends people yeah and that's a new like that's kind of like a, something I'm adamant about is to like see how what's the longevity here right yeah totally and you've been athlete a North Face athlete for over twenty years right not quite not quite yet God, I'm getting there though um, since like ninety nine oh yeah I'm pretty darn close yeah I'm like eighteen years yeah how do you see the your relationship and career evolving? Well, it's been reinvented many times. Just even going from a young, super hungry, like the world is my oyster sort of, um, I don't know, arrogant even, like skier, just of like, I got this, you know, Mm -hmm. whatever, to then getting married and the, the sort of changes and pluses and minuses that that bring to a career and then having kids and and North Face sticking with me through all of those changes and there are points when I really wanted to like throw in the towel and quit and I was you know being a runner with North Face for a while Mm -hmm. and you know I've just reinvented myself a lot of different times and they've been very patient in that process and I think that's pretty incredible to to be a professional athlete you know for a Totally. Yeah. Because I look at it from the outside looking in, you know, and having watched the North Face evolve over my 20 plus career, uh, year career in the outdoor industry. And to my eyes, you have kind of, they positioned Conrad as that like heritage athlete. Right. But in my eyes, that's, that funnel seems to exist there for you. Right. Yeah. And I, I hope so. I mean, I, I, it's a two way street, you know, I have especially when it comes to mountaineering and stuff you you find your stride only with years of experience and your confidence and I wouldn't say I'm totally there I never want to be like oh oh I've I've got this I want to be like learning every day of my life moving forward and but I do have a lot of experience and I know a lot of people in the industry and I've seen a lot of things and, and I just, I love it and I'm excited for the next generation and excited to like, just be in the mountains mm-hmm. still, just like I was 20 years ago. So, right. um, yeah, it's, it's great. Um, I think I'm only finally just seeing it as like, Oh wait, this is a, this is actually a career. So I like that side of it. Yeah. I've read you quoted as, as, you know, saying of being scared of daily monotony. Yeah. Why, why do you think that is? Gosh. Because it fascinates me because I'm the same way. It's this intense fear of just getting too comfortable. And I think it's really ruled my life in a lot of ways of like we were like in the beginning, how you're talking about moving to Chamonix and what drove that and and spending five years there and all of that has been just this underlying current of like, I have to like, Oh my gosh, I'm, I'm too comfortable where I am right now. I need to make some decision that like puts me back at like starvation mode or like just barely survival mode or Mm -hmm. something that changes. And I don't, I don't know necessarily where that comes from in me, but it's pretty intense. I mean, there's definitely times like with, Popsura, the mountain I was talking about last night. I mean, I would wake up in the middle of the night, like I've had crazy dreams and nightmares even about having to go back to this mountain. And it is because of that day-to-day routine and that, that fear of comfort and expeditions, if for nothing else, they, they 
you don't have showers for three weeks. You are just focused on survival and there's something really beautiful about that. And yeah, I, I sometimes wish that I would move into a new place in life and stop having these sort of obsessive yeah. need to just constantly create a, a different day. Right. Every day. Well, it fascinates me because I, I feel like p- driven people or, you know, motivated people are that way for a reason. And I look at my myself and self-analyze and self-critique. And for me, it's a function of how I grew up. It right. wasn't so easy along the way. Right. But it's made me who I am. And it makes, it, it makes me continuously driven for the next thing. Right. And that's a good and a bad thing. Right. Right. It is. It keeps your life, it keeps interesting. And it goes back to like, you're learning something. You're forcing yourself into these situations where you continue to learn. Mm -hmm. And I am pretty adamant about once you, once you, if you ever get to a place in your life where you know it all and this, that, and the other thing, it's like, you just throw in the towel at that point. I mean, you might as well just give up because if there's anything I've learned, it's that every day I get older, I just realize I know less and less and less. Right. And everything that I thought I could like stand on a pedestal about is just, it's just not right. true. Mm-hmm. And life it has a funny way of bringing those things and putting them right in your face. And you have to figure out how to, how to just learn. How to deal. And how to deal. I think that's the beauty of life too. If we're open to it, it's so instructional. Yeah. You know, talk to me about uh, suffering because we we huh. talk about it with every guest. Yep. And uh, it's f- for those people who play in the mountains, um, they get it. Um, but for those who don't, I think it's always insightful to to kind of expound on what we chase, you know, right. in day to day lives. I mean, suffering for me is nothing short of a total necessity. The greater you suffer, the greater capacity you have to be happy. I don't like using the word happy, but the greater capacity you have to get closer to joy. Mm-hmm. Um, so I like to suffer. Yeah, I like to, I, I think of it also like I have a science background. I often think of it as a science experiment. Mm-hmm. Like how far can I really push myself? And like, I'll get to this point and be like, wow, this is suffering, but I've suffered this hard before. So maybe if I just push a little bit more, I'll get into this different headspace. I'll get to know some different part of my brain, some different part of myself. And uh, that's so how I ins- look at suffering. It's instructional. It's really instructional. And sometimes maybe you push it a little too far, but like, I mean, what is life if you don't have suffering? Like you, it's there, you you might, you don't, it's not really life. You're just kind of in this, like, I I don't know, I guess for me and I'm, I just see it as like this sort of monotony. Like you can't, it means you haven't taken any risks. It Mm -hmm. means you haven't tried something new. You haven't gotten out of your own little box and that's suffering right and but it also is the flip side so it's suffering and it's joy mm-hmm. and i think and mountains it's... can really make you suffer oh yeah yeah and <laughs> teach be, you yeah. super vital lessons yeah yeah i think it's tremendously instructional and and i think two people can you know we we exist in a society that's soft right where yeah. everything's done easy f- yeah it's easy i mean of course we're privileged first world you know, people to be able to talk about life that way, but but that doesn't equate necessarily to happiness. I don't think. I mean, having traveled through a lot of more impoverished, less first world places right. that seem a lot happier than we are. Right, way happier. Right. Yeah. With nothing. Right. How about failure? How do you process it? I mean, professionally and in your personal life. I mean, I've had a lot of it. <laughs> And it's hard to process. Uh, again, it kind of relates to suffering and trying, uh, trying things mm-hmm. and failing. It relates to making bad decisions. It relates to, you know, sometimes not being a good person. Mm-hmm. Well, it's funny that t- yeah. society puts kind of this negative connotation on on failure, right? But I think I've seen in the last few years anyway, a lot of people starting to speak 
to the power of failure. And maybe that's just right. my journey and my trip, but you know, you harnessing that for positive as opposed to a negative. Right. I mean, I just gave a talk about the power of failure. Again, if you don't put yourself out there to take risks to fail, you're you're not making an effort to follow your dreams, your uh, your you're full not, potential, you're maybe. Not, yeah, you're not finding your full potential. Your it, it it's impossible. I mean, it has to be impossible to go through life without failing. So mm-hmm. it's really what you do with that failure after it's happened. Do you use that as as a cage to never take risk again and to never put yourself out there again, or do you use it as something you can learn from? And try again, but try with that new perspective of having failed and hit this wall. Like I kind of see failure as a versus, you know, maybe a difficulty or something like that, a bump in the road. Failure is something that changes the projectile of your future. You know, it it forces you to turn a different direction and be a new person or a different person coming out of it. And that can be for better or for worse. So it's kind of up to you. Like I tell my kids this all the time, like how your day is, is a choice you make when you wake up in the morning. Mm -hmm. You can choose to be grumpy and everything is against you or you can like choose to smile and be gracious and embrace the day. And... I mean, I think that's kind of how you choose, you choose how to perceive failure. Well, and I think, you know, it seems to me that the Myanmar trip was this highly publicized, yeah. like you were the tip of the arrow and that was, yeah. you know, kind of a, could be categorized in that way because there right. was a lot of, you know, things that went on there. And um, Oh, and I, yeah, talk about a lot of like your deepest emotions and fears sort of like put right in your face right. and, and made public. Yeah. Can you can you give us some background on the trip and kind of how it played out? Yeah, we um, there was a group of six of us, and it was a National Geographic grant that funded this expedition. And I was team leader or co-leader with Mark Jenkins, who was a Nat Geo writer. We took on like a serious adventure. I mean, really the definition of an adventure is like basically adventure starts when everything goes wrong, falls apart, right? Yeah. When everything falls apart. Mm-hmm. So we all knew this going into it. And of course, like everything fell apart in pieces as we were moving up. But what really I didn't see coming was this sort of team dynamic that happened as we got towards summiting Right. Hakakawarazi, which is a really remote peak. I mean, we walked, we, you know, took a week to go overland and then 80 miles on these little mopeds. And then we walked 150 miles through a jungle just to get to base camp. And then we had this crazy, insane, alpine, difficult mountain to assess and climb. Um, our food pres- reserves had run out. And this is we with a really lot of, out. this is with a lot of high profile. North Face athletes. Really high profile athletes, really um, intense A-type personalities, none of which, myself included, do well in the suffocating jungle environment where you can't, (laughs) you know, tell up from down and it just feels like you're going in a circle. Like we all like to be in control or think we're in some sort of semblance of control. And there was just a lot of letting go of all of this all the way in. You know, as we moved up the mountain, basically our team dynamics started to fall apart. And I take that very personal, like that, like is something I undoubtedly pride myself on the most is being able to read people and, and manage dynamics and keep groups together. And so when it just blew up in a time bomb, it was like one of the things I took the most pride in completely and utterly just failed. And there's no getting around that, you know? So I had to, kind of look that in the face and be like you know what just happened where how did this go so awry and you know and then the other part of it was being told basically at high camp that I wasn't going to be part of the team that went to the summit and I was told that versus having a discussion about how we were going to formulate the summit team and I took great offense to it obviously and gender came in all you know all kinds of like everything you could imagine Mm -hmm. 
Uh, I came old home, school, new school. Old school, new school. Um, you know, when I stood up for myself, I was called out in in very various blogs by Mark about how egotistical I was and my hubris and all these things again that I took great pride in my career climbing of not having those things mm-hmm. and really being a, a team member. Team member, really being a solid climber based on skill set and being good at decision making and risk taking and tolerance and all of that. And so to be called out for those things again hit me right where my pride was. So I came home and you know that was when I really almost quit everything and um because it was so personal. Because it was so personal, yeah. And it took me a long time. It took me 6 months or more to kind of come back into like wait a second you you can get over this you can do this it's your your career and your climbing is beyond this and i'm curious is there a silver lining there for you i mean were you able to flip it to use it to your advantage um i think so yeah i it took me a while to kind of come back and lead another expedition so that didn't really happen until 2017 with pup store where i actually took on the logistics and planning and putting the team together and going to somewhere that I really wanted to go. So that's, you know, three years later mm-hmm. before I actually led another expedition. Right. And I was really nervous about it. And I think it's really helped me clarify what I want out of these expeditions and what I'm really looking for. So I guess that would be the silver lining. Yeah. What are you, what do you think clarity. you look for in those expeditions? Who I'm climbing with, the dynamics of the team, and is it the right dynamics? And knowing that we're kind of on the same page and knowing that I'm choosing a place I want to go to. I mean, uh, Myanmar was really a place I'd wanted to go to for a long time, but not just saying yes to any sort of trip left or right, but having that, that focus and really training for it and, and putting passion into it. I right. guess. Have you been able to salvage those relationships from the trip or relationship? Yeah, I mean, Corey Richards was on it and Renan mm-hmm. and Emily Harrington and Taylor and all of those relationships are great. Renan, I, Renan Taylor's Renan's partner. Taylor is Renan's partner. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And they've been since married since, Hakakabarazi since Myanmar. Yeah. And in terms of Mark, I think that I don't need to be friends with everyone. And that's something that I've learned out of it. I have, I, I'm definitely that kind of person who wants everybody to be happy and mm-hmm. wants every, but every relationship to work out. And, um, sometimes it doesn't, sometimes it just doesn't. And I'm okay with that. Yeah. Yeah. Right on. If I'm not mistaken, after that trip, you kind of shook your life up. Yeah, I mean... You think the trip played into that, or is it just a series of a sequential yeah, events? Yeah, there are a series of things that went on over those several years. Like in 2010, I said I had this accident with a client who... Um, it was like my first day back at work, heli skiing in Telluride, and just this crazy fluke accident where I was alone with this other woman, and she fell into a river and had her... And just, she drowned basically. Oof. And, um, Brutal. that was, took a huge blow to me and subsequently to my marriage and friendships and just my life in general. I struggled with that for a long time and I used the mountains as more of a place to run away from myself, kind of like what Corey was saying about his own things. And I found I couldn't run far enough. Mm-hmm. You had and, to deal eventually. Yeah. And so, but I was using the mountains for something different than I'd used them for before, you know, as an escape versus as a, as a place that I play. treasured, you know, play. Um, and then this trip to Burma happened and kind of blew up in my face and forced me to really look at where I was and changes that I needed to do in my life and how to, how to get back to being myself and, my husband and I separated in 2015. Um, I've since been with a partner here, Jim Morrison, and, and I, I think I'm on that path now. And 
yeah, it's, it's been, a, it's a hard road. Mm-hmm. Life is just, it's not easy. Yeah, it's just not easy, but it's, it's amazing too. It's beautiful. Not, yeah. Yeah. But oftentimes not pretty, not pretty, but I feel like if you can live through the tough or ugly times right. and you come right. out a better person for it on the end, or at least yeah, that's I the hope. hope so. That's right? the hope. Yeah. yeah. That's the hope. Or you're just, right. maybe there's no hope if you don't. And I think <laughs> I, I've also learned that like, like you gotta, you really gotta make this life how you want it to be mm-hmm. um because and i'm sure you know the older you get the faster it goes and totally it's relentless yeah you just yeah you you think you just you, you sit back and hope things will happen or change and all of a sudden 10 years have gone by so yeah you you just have to be proactive and right i don't know yeah i think kip had the best email ever it was ski it now at gmail.com <laughs> yeah <laughs> that was like so kip yeah and, and uh i mean take it for like live it now whatever it is yeah skiing w- whatever life, the passion whatever is. yeah yeah who were your mentors growing up in the mountains you mentioned the uh, homie and chamonix but have you had uh i mean it's it's different like i i feel like i came from so, so left field into the mountains that i didn't have a lot of mentors until i was like in chamonix and living it you know um, a lot of my influences were from, you know, ski movies, The Blizzard of Oz, mm-hmm. Scott Schmidt, Kristen Ulmer, Rob Delorier. And I didn't know anything about mountaineering until, yeah, I was in my 20s, you mm-hmm. know. So a lot of different French climbers were big. Lynn Hill, obviously, like I thought she was pretty much the bomb. Mm-hmm. She still is, I think, yeah. you know. Catherine Destivelle, like I thought she was pretty rad. Mm-hmm. I think she is pretty rad. Yeah. Um, I just got to meet her a couple of years ago at BAMP Film Festival. I was like, oh, I totally starstruck. Right. Um, but yeah, so those were kind of my influences, but they were all sort of later in life when I was in it and doing it, but didn't really know what I was doing. And so coming across those individuals was like, Oh, Whoa, you could, you could take it this far. Right. Yeah. Do you find yourself mentoring other athletes on the North face team or is there a, I mean, I hope so. I think so. Is there a reverse flow? Like there is. Yeah. I mean, I'll take Emily Harrington, for example, like I, the, the purpose of us both being on that Everest trip was for me to like, mentor her from her you know gym climbing days into alpine climbing but the really awesome thing about it was the reverse mentoring and just having this new vision from such a young and ambitious athlete that is emily just having her different it's like when you have kids like you all of a sudden you stop seeing things the same way you see them every day and you get this new blood and this new excitement for um, seeing things through this different generation's eyes. Mm-hmm. And so, yeah, there's that relationship with Emily that, like, I'd like to say I was her mentor, but in so many ways, it's gone both ways. Right. Most definitely. Well, I know she um, loves you. Yeah, I love her. Yeah. I mean, she's great. Yeah. I mean, Emily has this unique ability to put herself out there in sports that she'll be the first one to say she's never done this before. Mm-hmm. She's not good at it. And then she approaches it with humor and humility. Self-deprecation. And those are really valuable qualities to have yeah. in a climber I or in, just in, in anything. Yeah. yeah. Well, and you've done that too. I mean, to show up at our race, you know, we put on the, right, bro- the, the broken, broken arrow. Right, the broken arrow. Oh, my God. For your fo- first ultra, it, which is yeah. like totally surly. Most people do oh my a gosh. flat 50K. Yeah. Um, and place in the top 10 says a lot, you know. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, maybe that speaks to my like obsessive nature. Of, right. <laughs> like, I don't know, but yeah, or just maybe you know, and kind of always looking for that next fulfilling physical endeavor. Right. Yeah, and that was that broken arrow was kind of like part of this whole year of just like trying stuff different. Like my first Ironman, mm-hmm. like learning how to swim. I didn't even know how to swim. So, right. Yeah. Awesome. What are you most proud of in your life? My kids, probably. Mm-hmm. Yeah. They're definitely something that keeps every day new and different. And mm-hmm. like you said, there's no guidebook. There's no no playlist on how you're supposed to do it. And right. yeah, it's got to be kids. a great challenge too. It is such a challenge. It's really intense. Yeah. 
Um, but, but right now they're like at this golden age. They're so much fun and they're smart and they're perceptive and they have friends and socialize and it's just seeing them kind of blossom into having their own opinions and mm -hmm. it's cool. It's got to be fun to watch. Yeah, it's fun to watch. Yeah. What would you do if you couldn't climb or ski? <laughs> oh, that's a good question. Uh, I don't know. I really like being outside, so maybe I would just, I'd just like to be outside. Mm -hmm. I like, I could go back to science and biology and right. um, birds. Do field work. Do field work. Mm -hmm. I like to sew and do like crafty things, which is sort of weird. <laughs> That's funny. But um, yeah, go back to studying. Yeah. Um, try to save the world. Right. <laughs> I don't know. That's timely. It means a tremendous deal that you would take time out of your life and present a show to yeah. our community and then sit down here and give people a personal glimpse into into who you are. We're super yeah. appreciative Thanks. and grateful for the time. I mean, it's really like you guys have really done an amazing thing in this community. So I, I'm psyched to be part of it. Yeah. It's cool. Awesome. Well, thank you. Cool. Yeah. Thanks. Sweet. This episode of Afterglow was recorded at the Pink Palace Studio on the west shore of Lake Tahoe. Our sound engineer and editor for this episode was Kristen Hanna. Our producer was myself and Kristen Hanna. Season 2 of Afterglow features music by Elias Schreiber and Declan Mack, who together make up the Cowboys fiddle. Check them out on Instagram and make sure to give them some love. Season 2 of Afterglow continues on Friday, November 2nd with JT Holmes. It's a deep, intimate, and insightful conversation that I can assure you, you don't want to miss. <laughs>